You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Well, when I was 14 years old, I bought my first car, a 1963 Volkswagen Beetle. I paid $300 for it. Um, It was in a pasture um, behind some random lady's house. We had to go pick it up on on a trailer, bring it back home. It was in horrible um, condition. But I had two years before I was going to get my driver's license, so I was committed that I was going to restore this car to its original beauty, maybe even better than it was originally. So my dad and I began to take it apart piece after piece. We removed the engine to be rebuilt. We would take out rusted panels, and we'd replace them with new, beautiful panels. And then I set about the, the really the arduous task of sanding, of removing years and years of rust from this car. And so I sanded, and then I sandblasted, and then I sanded some more, and eventually I gave up on the whole project. I bought a different car. When I turned 16, I bought a different car, and I never restored that Beetle to its original glory. In fact, just a few years ago, I sold it for $500, so that's a profit, um, to somebody else. It's their restoration project now. I understand that they have already finished it, and it's now driving the roads of my parents' hometown. But restoration is hard work whether it's a car or or furniture. Um, Some of our friends know that from being a part of the teen skills program where they get to restore furniture together with some of the um, the kids of of the neighborhood. And restoration is hard work because not only do you have to remove the existing issues, but then, only then do you get to begin to restore something back to its original beauty. And it is hard, but perhaps... Nothing is more satisfying than when you get to show off that thing that you have rescued from its broken state. Just, just go to a classic car show someday, walk around. Not only do you get to see some incredible cars, but talk to the people there who are excited about the work of restoration that they've done over years to take those cars and restore them to their original beauty. And you got to believe that if those cars could talk, they too would be rejoicing in the fact that they have new coats of paint on them and that their engines run so smooth and so wonderfully. You know, restoration is a big theme in, in Scripture. If we think about the the whole of of the Bible, we can sort of sum the story of the Bible up into four movements. Creation, right? In, In the beginning, God created everything, and everything that God created was good. Everything worked together in this sort of flawless beauty. It was good, but it didn't last, right? The second movement we call the fall. It's when Adam and Eve decided to sin in the garden. They not only ruined their relationship with God and with each other, but they brought brokenness into every area of creation. And just as everything was good now because of sin, everything was broken. But God was not satisfied 
to leave us in a world of such brokenness. And so he worked out a a redemption or a, a salvation plan. Ever since sin entered the world, God has been working out a plan of salvation. As soon as brokenness came, God began the work of fixing it. And we call that movement Redemption, the work of God to buy back his creation for himself, to buy back his people from the terrors of sin. And ultimately, ultimately we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus who who died in our place, taking the full wrath of God upon himself so that any now who would repent and believe in him would be saved. That's the, the redemption story. And anybody who is trusting in Christ is living that story right now, but it's not the end of the story. Jesus didn't just redeem us, but he promises that one day he will restore us. That's the fourth and final movement in the story of scripture. The promise of the Bible is that God will one day make all things new. And he's way better at restoration than I am because he doesn't quit. He accomplishes everything that he sets himself to do. And so today we're continuing in in the book of Joel. Um, We've got this series we've been in for a couple of weeks that we're calling Judgment and Salvation on the Day of the Lord. These last two weeks, we've walked through the beginning of the book, really the first half of the book. And we've honestly focused mostly on judgment, Right? There's a particular judgment that's come upon the land of Israel, but then more broadly, we might envision our own lives and our own judgment as well. We've been reminded in these last two weeks that in the midst of judgment, we're called to repent. That's Joel's instruction. Um, in the face of judgment, we ought to repent. But as we enter into the second half of the book, the last two sermons... We're going to find in Joel that the emphasis of the prophet changes. We've turned a corner in the prophecy to now the restoration that comes when we do repent, the salvation that comes when we do repent, right? So if the first half of the book is about judgment on the day of the Lord, the second half is about salvation on the day of the Lord. And if the call of the first half is that in the midst of our judgment, we ought to repent, the call of the second half is that in in light of salvation, we ought to rejoice. So you may remember last week, one of the things that I said was where there's no repentance, there's no salvation, but where there is, there is. Where there is repentance, there is salvation. And that salvation is the focus of the second half of the book of Joel. A a salvation that isn't just the removal of our enemies, not just a removal of the harm that they have done, but a full restoration to the way that things are supposed to be. In the first chapter and a half of Joel, we're told about this horrible locust invasion. It's come and it's eaten everything. It's destroyed everything. If you were with us the last couple of weeks, you may remember that it said that before the locust came, it was like the Garden of Eden, but right behind them, it was a desolate wilderness. And there seems also to be a conversation about another type of judgment that's coming, even worse than the locusts, he says in chapter two. The locusts were bad, but there's a worse one coming. Why? Because all of the people, all of the people of Israel are living in idolatry and sin. And so enter the prophet Joel, and he begins to tell the people that they need to repent from the oldest to the youngest. 
He says, from the everyday person to the priest and to the ministers at the altar, everybody, all together, everybody needs to repent because everybody, all together, has sinned against the Lord, right? That, that call to repentance in light of judgment, perhaps most clearly, we see it in, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Here's what Joel says. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. That's, that's repent. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And then he continues to talk about this repentance for the next five verses. And the turning point of the book seems to come somewhere between chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 18. And it's not actually, we'll see it, we don't, get to, we don't know what happened, but we do know that they repented. Because between verse 17 and 18, everything changes. Joel has been telling them that judgment is coming and they need to repent. And now it appears that they've done just that. Because God's whole demeanor has changed towards his people. And now restoration is coming. And so they're called to rejoice. Because when we repent... God restores so we can rejoice. Okay, so with that context in mind, let's turn our attention to the text itself. We're looking this morning at Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you have one. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 849. And please feel free, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, those over there, they're, they're yours. Take them. Take them with you so you have one of your own. It's our gift to you. Okay, Israel has repented, right? So that's, we want to remember that they've turned back to the Lord. They've turned from sin and idolatry. They've turned to God. And now here's Joel 2, starting in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things." Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. 
when we repent, God restores and we can rejoice. Right? Do, you, do you see that here? The people have returned to the Lord. If we take the, the image given to us in, in the preceding verses, what seems to happen is the people of Jerusalem, all of them have crammed themselves into the temple. That's what they were called to do. They're crammed into the vestibule of the temple and they have pleaded with the Lord. And, and the priests have cried out on their behalf. And now Joel has given an answer from the Lord. The God of Israel promises salvation and restoration to his people. He has heard, he has seen their situation and in his jealousy for his own name, with pity on his people, with mercy for his people, he's now gonna bring about restoration and wholeness again. Because when we repent, God restores and our passage this morning is just a, really it's just like a step-by-step -step reversal of all the damage that the locusts have done. All the damage of the first chapter and a half of the book, now we're told it's all reversed. Right, so chapter one, verse 10, we're told that the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. But now in chapter two, chapter two, 19, God says, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. Right, so, so chapter two, verse 17 says that the fear has come upon them, that they're gonna become a mockery among the nations. But now in chapter two, verse 19, we're told that God says, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Right, and of course the locusts, the locusts were there, the invaders, but they're all gone now. Verse 20 tells us that they're not just gone, but they've literally been split into the army, has been divided and driven out, and they're all dead. And the only reason we even know that they were there is because we smell their rotting corpses. They are destroyed. The army is gone. God has intervened on behalf of his people and he has brought salvation because when we repent, God restores. If there's, if there's one thing, that I learned from that Volkswagen Beetle. It's that when it comes to restoration, there's two parts. There's removal and then there's renewal. You have to start by removing all of the rust. I never got through that part. And then you can renew that, in this case, car. And this is what we see God doing here, right? First, he removes all of the enemies. He removes the, the northerner, the invader from them. He removes their fear and their, and their shame. He promises them that they will never again be put to shame. What an incredible promise. They will never again be put to shame. If we have repented of our sins, we've been forgiven by God. We've been adopted as his child, renewed by his spirit. And there's no need, there's no room for fear or shame any longer. Shame and fear are the result, they're the fruit of condemnation. And Romans chapter eight, verse one tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our passage here twice says, fear not. And twice it says that they will never again be put to shame. But how often, 
How often do we allow sins that we've already repented of and we've already been forgiven of cause us to live in shame and fear? And we refuse to tell the story of God's work in our lives because we are living in shame over things that God has already removed, things that God has already dealt with. And I'm not telling you that we ought to brag about our sin, right? That's not it either. The antidote to shame isn't pride, it's humility. It's humbly boasting of the work of Christ. Right? That's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us about this thorn in his flesh, this sin in his life that he just can't get rid of. And then listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul has this, this harassing sin in his life, a particular weakness that might cause him to become ashamed. But instead, he boasts in his weakness. He didn't tell us what it is, right? He's not glorying in that sin, but he boasts in the fact that he is weak. Because if people know that he too is weak, they will more clearly see the strength and the power of the Lord, right? And so friend, when it comes to your sin, don't live in pride about your sin, but don't live in shame about it either. Live in humility and don't live in fear. Live in love. The love of God is the reason that we don't have to fear the wrath of God. Because all those who have repented and believed in Jesus now live in the love of God. And there's no reason, no reason to fear anymore. This is the way 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 puts it. It says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment. So the love of God shown to us in the death of Christ drives out fear because Christ has fully and completely taken the fullness of the punishment of God. The fullness of the wrath of God has been taken on Christ himself. And then his perfect love cast out fear from our lives. When we repent, God restores and it begins with this removal of, of things like fear and shame. Not to mention the, the removal of our enemy. Right in the passage, of course, that's, that's the locust. But we know our true enemy is, is Satan himself. But in Christ, Satan has been defeated. And one day we'll be fully removed. And even now has no claim on you. 
If you are a child of God, Satan has no claim on you. For all those who repent, all those who turn from their sins and turn to Jesus, God will restore. That is, God will remove their fear and their shame and the power of the enemy, and he will bring renewal. And as we said earlier, right, we see it here. They have grain and wine and oil again. The trees are bearing fruit again. The fields are green again. So even the animals get to rejoice. And the Lord didn't just provide a a little bit, but so much that they were satisfied. And perhaps we see it most clearly when we look at chapter one, verse four. Here's what chapter one, four says. It says, what the cutting locusts left the swarming locust has eaten what the swarming locust left. The hopping locust has eaten what the hopping locust left. The destroying locust has eaten. But then we compare that to chapter 2, verse 25, and we see this. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. I will restore to you all that they have taken. Think about what sin has taken from you. Think about what the brokenness of this world has taken from you. Sometimes the brokenness of this world seems like it hits just like those locusts in chapter one, just one after another. It just keeps coming right? Sickness. And then, and then I lost my job. And then I got into a car wreck. And then I, I had a divorce and then the death of a loved one. And then anxiety, and then trouble with my kids, and then difficulty in a relationship. And, and then a bad boss got replaced by an even worse boss. And then a depression, and then addiction, and then an unexpected bill. And then the list just starts all over and it just keeps coming. It seems like the brokenness of this world just steals years from our life. And here's what we are told in, in, in Christ is the promise of God is that all who have returned to Christ, all who have repented, restoration is coming and everything that the locusts have eaten will be restored. All of the sadness of this life will be redeemed. The years of hardness will be replaced with an eternity of goodness. That's the promise of God. When we repent, God restores everything. And you may think that the enemy that has come against you is too big. The enemy that has come against you is too big to be overcome. But listen, he's not bigger than God. He cannot do more than God and he will never outrun or defeat God. Verse 20, verse 20 tells us that the enemy army has done great things. Do you see that the enemy army has done great things, but then they were utterly destroyed utterly destroyed until the only thing that remains is their stench. And then verse 21 tells you, the Lord has done great things. And the great things of our great God are far superior than the great things of your enemy. If for no other reason, then then God and his great things are forever. They never end. He will never smell of death. You know that God has never smelled of death. Here's what we're told. We're told that Jesus died. We know that, right? Jesus died on the cross. And yet we're told that his body did not see corruption. That is to say his body didn't even smell of death. 
because the stench of death has no hold on our God. Instead, he claimed victory over death in his resurrection. And so your enemy may do great things, but your enemy will not last. But God will do great things, and God lasts forever. And so when we repent, God restores so we can rejoice. If the, if the call of God in the first part of Joel was repent, the call of God now is rejoice. Rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. Rejoice in the restoration of the Lord. Rejoice in the presence of the Lord. There, there are so many reasons that they could rejoice, and yet the biggest and the best reason is that the Lord is in their midst. You see that there in verse 27? He says, you shall know that I, this is God talking, that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. God is with them and that is cause for great rejoicing. God, God's provision in their life and in our life is not simply that we would eat well, his provision is not just wine and grain and oil, but he's actually giving them and he gives us everything that we need to be in relationship with him. When, if you back up in Joel, Joel chapter two, verse 14, it says this. He's encouraging them to repent. And he says this, who knows? Who knows whether God will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind? a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. God's relenting from disaster and providing for their needs includes him providing a way for them to commune with him. For the, for the Jews of Joel's day, that communing took place through these offerings that they would make to God. They would go into the temple and they would eat this meal with God. They would commune with God around this offering. And not only did they not have food to eat, but they didn't have food to offer. And so for these years, they had been separated from God. And now God has not only restored the grain that they need that they might live, but the grain and the wine and the oil that they need, that they might be with him, that they might commune with him around the table of the Lord again. And we too, we too, we're, we're no, we don't go in and make these sacrifices. Rather, we have been filled up with the spirit of God. And Jesus promises that he is always with us. And so we have much to rejoice over. If you have repented, your sins have been forgiven and we're being restored. We're in process and the Lord himself is with us. And so we rejoice in our salvation, both past, present, and, and future. Mostly that the Lord is with us, past, present, and future. We rejoice. And as Jesus told the disciples in, in Luke 10, he sends these 72 people out and they go and they do amazing things. They do amazing things. They cast out demons in his name and they come back to Jesus and they are ecstatic. And they're like, Jesus, look at what we did. We were casting out demons. And Jesus' response in verse 20 is this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We rejoice, not just that he's given us food or wine or oil. We rejoice because our names are written in heaven, that we are known by God. A place is prepared for us there. We rejoice because God is at work in us, even now, transforming us to be more and more into his likeness. We rejoice that we have an eternal hope set before us in the presence of God. And listen, we will feast. We will feast. We'll eat and we will drink until we are satisfied. But the greatest thing about that feast will not be the food and it will not be the drink. The greatest thing about that feast is that we will be taking it with the Lord himself. We will be in his presence. So when we repent, listen, God restores so we can rejoice. We can rejoice that God is not like me. God doesn't give up halfway. God sees his work through and he will certainly bring full restoration to all who would repent and believe in him. And if you don't know what that means when, when I say that, to repent is simply this, it's simply to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. To, to stop following and worshiping anything that isn't Jesus and to start following and worshiping and loving Jesus. And if you've never done that, Listen, today, scripture says today's the day of salvation. So today can be the day. Restoration is underway. One day, one day you will be made new. Listen, if today's the day, your name, he's ready, pen in hand, to write your name in heaven. And if you've trusted in him already, know this. He's at work. He's changing you. And one day you will be with him forever. Let's pray. God, we praise you because you are a God of restoration. We praise you because you didn't just see our sin and see our brokenness and throw up your hands and say, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. Instead, you saw our brokenness, you saw our sin, and you had pity on us, your people. And you began the work of redemption and the promise of restoration. So we thank you that in Christ in Christ, all who would repent and believe will be made new and will live forever with you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.